You may be wondering why this morning Susan read for us a scripture that would seemingly be more fitted for Easter rather than Christmas. Uh, And you may be wondering why I would preach a message at Christmas time on Isaiah 53. And so here's my answer to that if you are wondering that. It is because I want us as a church to always have in the forefront of our minds the full picture and communicate the full reason of the significance of Jesus' birth as we celebrate Christmas. I think it's so deeply important that we focus our hearts on Jesus' arrival as a babe in a manger, but we do so by fully grasping why he came, that he came as a babe in a manger in order to die for us. I want that lifted up in our minds as we celebrate the joy of his birth at Christmas because his birth is significant as a result of the rest of his story here on earth and a result of what culminated in his death and resurrection. Some theologians have pointed out that there would be no reason to celebrate Jesus' birth if he had died a normal death And stayed buried in the tomb. And in our cultural moment, it no longer allows for us to just focus on Jesus' birth at Christmas. Because the amount of biblical illiteracy that is present in our day. To focus only on the birth of Jesus without the the full picture of his purpose of why he was born makes it too easy for men and women to conclude that the babe in a manger is just a cute story that we talk about at this time of year. Men, Men and women need to know why he came and why it matters to them. And so you'll notice in this series, that's what we've been talking about, why Jesus came, what it means and why it matters for us. So let's get going with week two of our series called The Gift. In this series, we're looking at the three different gifts that the wise men or the magi brought to worship Jesus with and how each one of those gifts foreshadows an aspect of who Jesus is. And this series is inspired by Matthew 2, verse 10 to 11, which records for us the wise men's story. And informs us that the wise men saw a star rising in the sky and they knew that it signified Jesus' birth. And when they saw the sign, it filled them with joy and they went searching for the king of the Jews. And they traveled from a nation to the east, likely the nation or likely from the Parthian Empire, as I said last week. And they went in search of this newborn king of the Jews. And when they found him, they entered the house where Mary and Joseph were staying. They knelt down before Jesus and they worshipped him. And as part of their worship, they offered him three gifts. Opening their treasures, they gave him gold and frankincense and myrrh. And these are unusual gifts for a baby in our day. Can you imagine having a baby shower and someone's like, here, I brought you some frankincense and myrrh. You're like, how about some diapers? You know, a soother, maybe something like that. But they were valuable and useful gifts in the first century. Last week, we looked at the gift of frankincense and considered how frankincense, in addition to being valuable and useful, foreshadowed Jesus as our great high priest 
Foreshadowed him as the one who would sacrifice himself for his people, who would empathize and sympathize with us in our weaknesses because he experienced weakness as a man. The one who continues this day right in this very moment out of compassion for his people to intercede for us before our father in heaven. This is Jesus our high priest. And we looked at that last week. And as part of the message last week, I blew the lid off a myth that's been perpetuated for for thousands of years throughout history that the wise men were actually present at the manger. They weren't. He said that they actually arrived maybe two weeks up to two years after Jesus's birth. And some of you already knew that last week. Maybe some of you, it was new information for you last week, but uh, you were able to cope with it because nobody came up and asked me for prayer afterwards. So, So everybody worked through that revelation okay on your own. And so this week, in this morning's message, we're going to look at the gift of myrrh. And just like last week, before we get into what myrrh foreshadows about Jesus, I want to give you a little bit of background about what myrrh is. And complete confession, just like frankincense, I have no idea what myrrh is. And so I had to go and look that up this week. And here's what I discovered about myrrh. Myrrh, like frankincense, is actually produced by trees. It is a gum resin that is produced by the comophora trees. So all you hardcore botanists in here, that's for you. The Kamaphora trees, if anybody can identify that, good for you. Uh, They are trees that are native to the Near East, near the area of Egypt and Africa. And and like frankincense, myrrh could be used as incense. But in Jesus' time, it was more often used as a perfume or as an anointing oil. In addition to its cosmetic uses, uh, myrrh also has antiseptic and analgesic properties, meaning that it has pain relieving and healing properties to it. And so in modern times, because of its healing and pain relieving properties, it's actually been used to help relieve toothaches. So if you have a toothache, go find some myrrh. Uh, It can be used and has been used to heal cuts and bruises and other ailments. And so that's a little bit about what myrrh does. But how is myrrh a gift that foreshadows who Jesus is? Well, myrrh is mentioned in the Bible 17 times. And three of those times are in the New Testament. As we already know, it is mentioned once at Jesus' birth in Matthew 2.11 when the gifts of the wise men are listed. And the other two times that myrrh is mentioned in the New Testament is at Jesus' crucifixion. And so let's look at both of those times. The first one is found in Mark chapter 15. Mark writes the details of Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. He records that when Jesus arrived at Golgotha, the hill where he would be crucified, after being beaten and scourged and having to carry his cross with the assistance of Simon of Cyrene, before he was nailed to the cross, he was offered a drink. And this is recorded in Mark 15, 23. It says, and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Now, from the narrative, we don't know who offered him this wine mixed with myrrh. It appears from the wording of the narrative in the ESV Bible that it was the Roman soldiers who offered Jesus this drink. But that seems out of character for them to do that. Because offering him this wine and myrrh was an act of charity towards Jesus. You see, the mixture that they offered him when drank would have dulled the pain that he was experiencing and was about to experience on the cross. 
This mixture was very different than the sour wine that he was offered while he was on the cross by the soldiers. The wine that was mixed with gall, that wine was actually designed to prolong his suffering. We don't know who offered it to him. But regardless of who offered the wine mixed with myrrh, Mark Mark tells us Jesus didn't take it. Why didn't he take it? Because as D.A. Carson states, he was fully resolved to drink the cup of suffering that the Father had assigned to him. Jesus did not take the wine mixed with myrrh because he wanted, he was determined to bear the full force, to bear the full weight of suffering as a result of taking our sins upon himself. He did not want his pain to be muted. That detail in itself requires so much reflection from us. The second mention of myrrh in Jesus' crucifixion comes immediately after his death. Myrrh was a key ingredient in the mixture of spices that was used to prepare bodies for burial in Jewish custom. And it was this Jewish custom that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus followed when they were preparing Jesus' body for the tomb. John 19, starting in verse 38, says, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, that's a sermon, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, also who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. So based on the parallels between the gift of myrrh given to Jesus by the wise men and the use of myrrh in the crucifixion and the burial of Jesus, it's widely concluded that myrrh foreshadows Jesus as our suffering servant our Lamb of God, the one who was born to suffer on our behalf for the forgiveness of our sins. And so in the remainder of our time together, we're going to look at Isaiah 53, a scripture that we looked at not long ago, as we talked about Jesus being a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. We're going to see how myrrh represents Jesus as our suffering servant. And so let's pray. Father, I ask that as we... Look at your word this morning. As we look at Jesus as our suffering servant, our Lamb of God, that the depths of what he has done for us would pervade our hearts. That your Holy Spirit would speak to us in a fresh way about the suffering that he had on our behalf. And Father, for those that don't know you, that hearing about what he did for us would change their heart. Thank you for Jesus, Father. May you be glorified as we talk about what he did for us. In his name we pray. Amen. So Isaiah 53 was written 
700 years before Jesus was born. And in this chapter, Isaiah writes a rather detailed account about what the suffering servant would endure on our behalf. And I want us to look at that. But before we do, we have to understand why. Jesus, as our suffering servant, why did he have to endure so much on our behalf? And the first part of Isaiah 53, verse 6, states the problem that all of humanity has, from the youngest to the oldest in every generation since the Garden of Eden. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Isaiah is declaring that we have turned every single one of us from God's path in order to follow our own path. And Isaiah uses the imagery of sheep that have gone astray to illustrate this. Now, I have often heard pastors from the pulpit use Isaiah's comparison of people as sheep as fuel for jokes. Like many of you, maybe you've heard such jokes, namely that Sheep are dumb. So when people are compared to sheep, it's because we're not very bright. I was trying to think if I've ever repeated such a quip in the past five years that I've been pastoring. Because sometimes you hear things from pastors. You think, oh, that's kind of amusing. And then you use it yourself. And I don't know if anyone can call me out on that. Don't do it now. Come and talk to me after if I've ever done that. But as I was preparing this sermon, I found myself thinking about how much I've heard this conclusion about sheep in comparison to how people aren't bright. And I was thinking, I really don't think that's what God's saying. I don't think that's God's heart at all. It's an easy laugh that pastors go for. It's a self-deprecating poke at Jesus' church. But I don't think it's God's heart. Because even if sheep are dumb, I don't think God is comparing us to sheep to point out that we're stupid. That's not God's heart. It's like we talked about last month in our series about Jesus' heart. Jesus is for people. They matter. They are his creation. They are knitted together carefully by him. He values us deeply. And I don't think for a second Jesus' church is made up of stupid sheep. Sinful sheep, absolutely, but not stupid. We're made in the image of God. And he has graciously, through his son, made us a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special possession. That's what Peter says about us. So I started researching about sheep, something I thought I'd never do. And I came across a sermon written by Thomas Watson entitled The Good Shepherd, in which he paints a very different picture. He applies different characteristics to sheep. Thomas Watson writes that sheep are harmless. They're meek. They're clean. They're useful. They're content. They're easily frightened. But unfortunately, which is what Isaiah picks up on in 53.6, they're prone to wander from the fold. And that's Isaiah's point. Like sheep, we are prone to wander. Because of sin that entered the world as a result of the fall in the garden when Adam and Eve disobeyed God and went their own way. Humanity has followed in the steps of the first man and the first woman ever since, disobeying God and wandering aimlessly because of sin. And wandering is deadly for sheep because they are defenseless when they leave the fold. The sheep has no way of defending itself from predators. It is easy prey when it has left the safety of the flock and the shepherd who watches over it. 
You know, there's a, a true story that came out of Turkey in 2005 that illustrates the danger of wayward sheep. The Associated Press uh, reported on this, and it's true. Turkish shepherds had, had left their herd to, to, gay, to graze while they were eating breakfast. And while they ate, one of the sheep walked up to an edge of the cliff and walked right off and plunged to its death. And then one by one, nearly 1,500 sheep followed that one sheep, each stepping off the edge of the cliff after the other. In total, interesting tidbit for you, in total, 450 sheep ended up dying. What happened to the rest? Well, thankfully, the 450 created a pillow. It's a true story. They created a pillow, and, and the other almost 1,000 just bounced off and kept going. They survived. You can look it up. It's, it's, it's Fox News. It's in the press, I'm telling you. Like those, like those 1,500 sheep, though, who walked off a cliff, humanity has gone wayward. Humanity has gone astray. We have left the fold of God for our own way. And the problem is our way leads us off a cliff. It leads to hurt. It leads to heartache. And ultimately, it leads to death. And wandering looks different for each one of us. For me, it was believing that I was righteous enough in myself. That I, I, I could be good enough in myself. I, I didn't need God to tell me I was good. I could live a moral life by my own strength. The problem was my standard of morality was sorely off base. For some of you, your wandering looks like chasing after money. Chasing after career and accolades. Sex. So many different things we wander into thinking this will be good for me when really we're walking off a cliff. It's because we're like sheep. We've gone astray. We're wandering from the fold of God. And it's because of that that Jesus was born in a manger to be our suffering servant. He was born because God would lay upon him the sins of all of us. This is what Isaiah 53 is prophesying about 700 years before it happened. Isaiah writes about the suffering servant in verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. This is, we, we, we turned our backs on Jesus. We looked the other way. We didn't care about his sorrows. We didn't care about his grief because we thought his troubles were his own. God was punishing him for his own sin. When in fact, he was being punished for ours. Verse five, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Jesus crushed for our sins, beaten so that we could be made whole once again, whipped so that we could be healed. 
That's what Jesus has done for us as our suffering servant. Why do I paint that picture leading up to Christmas? Because more and more in our culture, people look at the Christmas story, they look at this baby born in a manger, and view it as an event far removed from their own reality. It's a nice story that happened a long time ago, if it really did happen. People question, what does it mean for today? Why does it matter? Why follow Jesus? Why devote my life to him? And the answer to why it matters, why follow Jesus, why devote life to him, is found in understanding his suffering, his crucifixion, the resurrection was for you. If you're a human being and you have breath in your lungs, the Christmas story matters for you because he was born to die for you and for me and for all of us. When you understand the extent of Jesus' suffering for you, suffering that was spurred on by the depths of his love, it becomes impossible to ignore the story of his birth and think it's irrelevant. Those who don't trust in Jesus, they may reject it, they may hate it, but they can't ignore it when they hear the whole story, if they understand his suffering. And for the person who has always just been floating along in nominal faith, it becomes impossible to remain a casual Christian who goes to church here and there, who throws up a prayer at dinner time here and there, who maybe dabbles in the word of God from time to time, maybe when there's nothing else going on. It's impossible to remain that way when you see exactly what he did for you and the cost that he paid for you. The only answer to that is a life fully committed to Jesus Christ. When you understand what Jesus did for us, when you understand the love he showered, he showed in his suffering, the only reasonable response is follow him with your whole heart, your whole soul, your whole mind, and your whole strength. And so to that point, let me paint a picture of our suffering servant for you. And I will not be able to do it justice. But where my words fail, I trust that the Holy Spirit speaks. So let's go back and begin on Thursday evening in the upper room. After eating the Passover meal with his disciples, Jesus left the upper room and went into the Garden of Gethsemane where he would ask God to remove the cup of suffering from him that was about to be poured over him. He was visualizing, he was comprehending the suffering that was to come. He was burdened and scared and asked his disciples, stay up with me, pray with me. Saying, my soul is is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. But his closest friends fell asleep. And so alone, before his father, Jesus falls on his face and cries out, My father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. 
Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. As he pleaded with his father in the garden, he sweat drops of blood, a rare condition known as hemosiderosis, experienced only under extreme trauma. It's a condition where the capillaries under the skin burst because of the trauma that you're under, the stress that you're under. It mixes with blood and comes out in sweat. Jesus' trauma was so deep, he felt he might die right there in the garden. He says, I'm sorrowful to death as he sweat blood. The mental trauma had begun in anticipation of the next day. His physical suffering would come later. In spite of his anguish, the ever-faithful Lamb of God submitted himself to the Father's will. And then Judas arrives, one of the 12 closest men that he had in his life, who traveled with him, who had slept next to him, who had eaten with him, learned from him, and with a kiss, he comes to him and betrays him to the Jewish authorities, and they arrest Jesus. They falsely accuse him. They unfairly try him, and they bring him before Pilate, demanding that he be put to death by the worst method that the evil minds of men could think of at that time, crucifixion. He was stripped naked, he was humiliated, he was shamed. A crown of thorns was placed upon his head with the sharp thorns being pushed into his brow. Then he was beaten, whipped across the back, causing his skin to tear off, exposing bone and muscle. Isaiah alludes to the fact that his beard would be pulled out and that when the Roman soldiers were done beating him, he would be so disfigured, he wasn't even recognizable as a human being. Then suffering and weak and alone, he was given a cross to carry, which weighed around 100 pounds, which he had to carry the full weight of for three quarters of a kilometer on a path known as the way of suffering. All the while, people jeered at him, spit on him, threw stones at him, until he arrived at Golgotha to be crucified on the cross. The soldiers took nails about a foot and a half, or about half a foot long, drove them into his wrists and his feet, securing him to the cross, his torn back rubbing against the rough wood of the beam. He was lifted up where he would remain to slowly die over hours. The torture of the cross is not only the pain of the nails. It's worse than that. It's the inability to breathe. The Romans secured Jesus in such a way that breathing was difficult. The only way to get a breath was to pull himself up, putting his weight on the nails on his wrists and his feet in order to inhale. And he had to do this over and over and over again until his shoulders would give out and his legs would give out and he was exhausted and he was unable to lift himself anymore, making it impossible to lift himself and catch a breath. His lungs started to fill with fluid as death came closer. All of that, as absolutely horrific as it is, isn't even the most painful part. The most painful part was when Jesus 
the Son of God, perfect, sinless, innocent, bore the sins of the world. All of our filth placed upon Him. All of our unholiness, all of our wickedness, all of our selfishness put on Him so that He became sin. And in doing so, the intimate fellowship Jesus, the Son, always had with the Father was hindered. And He experienced the agony of separation from His Father. So that at the most agonizing moment of Jesus' life, He cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Feeling utterly abandoned. Can you imagine the pain of that? My Father sent me here for this. Why are you not with me now? As I endured. He felt completely alone in his last moments. But determined to finish the task the Father gave him, he declares in faith, it's finished. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And he gave up his life for the forgiveness of sins. If that description is hard for you to listen to, if it is upsetting because of its ugliness, good. Good. It is horrific because our sin is horrific. Seven hundred years before this took place, the prophet Isaiah declared what Jesus would endure because of our sinfulness. Isaiah wrote it perfectly, verse eight: "By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth." Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. This is the work of Jesus, our suffering servant. The purpose of his actions on the cross, they go all the way back to the Old Testament to the event that he was commemorating with his disciples right before his own death, the Passover. The Passover meal commemorates the Israelites' exodus from captivity in Egypt and their freedom from slavery. God had promised to redeem his people from the Egyptians and he executed his plan with Moses, sending him to Pharaoh and demanding Pharaoh, let my people go. But when Pharaoh refused, God brought 10 plagues on the land of Egypt. And the tenth and worst plague was the death of all the firstborn in Egypt. And on the night of the tenth plague, God told the Israelites, sacrifice a spotless lamb and mark your doorposts with its blood so that when my judgment passes over Egypt, it will pass over your households that, because of the blood that is on your doors, saving the Israelites from the plague of death. Meanwhile, at midnight, the firstborn child of every Egyptian died. The first Passover foreshadows the second. 
the blood of the lamb put on the doorpost foreshadowed the blood of the lamb of God spilled on the cross. Jesus Christ, the innocent lamb of God was killed for the sins of the world. And when we in faith trust in the work of Jesus on the cross, we are covered by his blood as the Israelites were covered by the lamb's blood. And God's judgment passes over us. We are saved from sin. We are saved from death. It is only by the blood of Jesus we are forgiven and the penalty of death is no more. And so when you read about the myrrh given to Jesus by the wise men as a baby, remember, it was what was offered to him on the way to the cross. It was used to prepare his body when he died for the sins of the world. The babe in the manger came to die. And when you grasp this, the story of Christmas matters. It is not a faraway story. It is not a sweet fairy tale told at this time of year. It is not an irrelevant occurrence far in the past. It is for you. He came for you. And when you grasp that, It changes your life. It changes you. He endured what he endured for you and for me and for all of us. All of our sins, our anger, our lust, our hatred, our greed, our unforgiveness, our wicked hearts. Bore by the suffering servant of God who came to us as a baby. Let's pray. Father, I know that this message is heavy. I know that it is hard for us to stare into the face of exactly what Jesus did. Lord, may we understand, may we recognize that it's, it's horrific, it's awful, because our sin is awful. Our sin is horrific. Father, I pray for the men and women in here who maybe don't know you, who maybe before this morning didn't recognize that they were a sinner in need of salvation. Father, I ask that your Holy Spirit would speak to their hearts, that they would understand that it's not just mistakes that we make, it's so much deeper than that. And that Jesus came to die for them. And because of his death and resurrection, they may have life and have it abundantly. Father, for those in here who who know you, who maybe just haven't, fully given their lives and surrender to Jesus Christ, I pray that this picture of what he has done for us would spur them on. Lord, that when we recognize that he gave all for us, we can do nothing less. Our whole lives are owed to you. And so, Father, I pray for each one of us that our lives would be fully surrendered to you. We will not follow you perfectly. 
But God, may our hearts be hearts that desire to just follow you as best as we can. To live for you in each moment. To look to you in each moment. And to love you in each moment. We thank you for our suffering servant who was born in a manger. We praise you for Jesus. It's in his name I pray. Amen.